0: Welcome everyone to episode 52 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Brad DeLong. Brad is an economic historian who is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He did his undergrad and PhD in economics from Harvard. He was the deputy assistant secretary of the treasury under Larry Summers in the Clinton administration. He's The author of the Grasping Reality blog at Substack on Twitter, he's at DeLong, where he has over 80,000 followers. And most importantly, for the purposes of this podcast, he's the author of the book Slouching Towards Utopia. Brad, how's it going today?
1: So far, it's going absolutely excellent today. Um, You know, the sun is shining. It's in the 70s. The dogs are happy. The wife is happy. Um, Life is good.
0: I'm wondering if, uh, for a little biography, you can take us back to your years as an undergrad at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Strang- Strangely enough, I recall uh, reading about your undergrad career in an article that the Crimson put out almost 20 years ago. Yes. Yes. It was it was notable that you were uh, roommates or near roommates with Andre mm-hmm. Schweifer. Could you take us to that time?
1: Yeah no we were simply thrown in together um in adjoining suites with a fire door next with a fire door that we soon opened um between the two of us now seven people total and we took i guess we took three semester courses together our freshman year um and math 55 in the fall and ec10 in the fall and the spring um Math 55 convinced us that, although we were all both very good at my math and very smart, that um, there were people who were better and smarter than we were. Um, and um, at that age, we were kind of proud and arrogant and had not yet figured out the, the right the way to do things is not to find a place where you are the best, but rather to find a place where there are smarter people than you around, so you can learn from them. We had an superb, an absolutely superb EC10 teacher. You know, he was an assistant professor of economics named Rick Erickson, a specialist in the economies of the really existing socialist countries and comparative systems, as it was now said. And after a year learning from Rick Erickson, we were both pretty much convinced that economics was what we would like to major in, where we would like to go, where we would like to make our careers.
0: Now, later in life, you wrote uh, with Larry Summers and Andre Schleifer.
1: And Robert uh, Waldman, and Robert Waldman, yes.
0: noise, Noise Trader Risk, which was a foundational paper in behavioral finance but before those years uh i would like to um examine the path which led you to economic history because as i understand it that was not a fashionable path when you were when you were an undergrad and you sought out an eclectic collection of courses that included uh, philosophy and history and so forth and eventually found economic history
1: it looked like everything was fun, and I started out thinking I should take whatever interested me the most at the moment, which is something I've continued to this day, because it's what interests me the most, is what I'm most enthusiastic about working on, and it's had some successes, right? it's, it's, it's been great in some ways, and limiting in others, and so I found myself taking courses in the sciences, taking courses in computer science, taking courses in history, taking courses in economics, taking courses in political economy, um, taking a few courses in literary criticism. And the the fact that Harvard back then had two majors that were exclusive, right? That is, it wasn't enough to have applied and gotten into Harvard. You then had to apply and get into the major, um, history and literature and social studies. And that attracted us like moths to a flame. I applied for and got into social studies. and so come my senior year, I found myself, you know, um, wondering what I should do, um, what afterwards. The economy was in recession. When I graduated in June of 1982, the unemployment rate was going to be 11%. So I took a look at the job market outside, and I decided I should stay in the university. And then I noticed... Um, i noticed that people who were applying for jobs in as assistant professors in history and social studies that they were 40 years old or so and had written two books while the people applying for jobs in economics and social studies were 25 and they had one half written paper and enthusiastic letters from their advisors saying the paper is still a mess but the guy is really really smart and so it seemed to me that if i was going to stay in the university that i should go and um that i should go and get a phd in economics probably at the time thinking that you know i would use the fact that i knew and liked the sciences um to do something like a phd in industrial organization and technology and then see what developed career wise afterwards but um the first semester of my um you know, the first semester of my graduate career, the entire Harvard industrial organization group simply collapsed. That David Kreps left for Stanford. I think because Harvard was being nasty about you finding places for his wife, Anna Edmati. Um, Glenn Lowry decided no, he didn't want to be an industrial organization economics professor, but instead headed off to the Kennedy School. And Michael Spence became dean of the faculty which meant we had gone from you know three relatively young, very enthusiastic, wonderful industrial organization professors down to zero. So when Larry Summers came back from his year at the um, Reagan administration um, and was for the first time a Harvard faculty member, I came out with him and said, well, I would like to be one of your very first students. And he said, fine, that will be fun. Um, I knew Larry because Andre had been um, a research assistant for Larry when Andre and I were undergrads, even though Summers was then a professor at MIT. I think Andre may have been his first research assistant ever. Um, and so Andre had a wonderful time. I thought I would have a wonderful time, too, and I did. Was it, And that kind it? of led me in the directions that I've followed since.
0: Was it after the PhD years or during the PhD years that you deep dived in economic history?
1: Oh, during, 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 right? That is, you know, um, Larry's view was given You uh, know, my interests in history and my ability to accumulate, to actually act like a giant squirrel. Um, accumulating large amounts of facts, stray facts, and then burying them and being able to dig them up again. Um, that the that the natural places for me to go, the places where I might find the sweet spot in terms of a career, um, were first in trying to math up pieces of John Maynard Keynes and so forth, and second in more or less following in the footsteps of what Barry Eichengreen was doing which was taking some contemporary issue and telling us what does the long historical record tell us about X. Yeah, and I by and large have taken his advice since and with considerable success, I must say.
0: Now, I risk uh, getting my dates entirely off, but Mm -hmm. um, who, who were dominant figures within economic history in the economics department at that time? I mean, you think of John Kenneth Galbraith as being maybe still around at that time and then david landis not really
1: not really i saw him only a little bit um i saw david landis a lot you know that is what was it i was telling ucla's robert brenner last month that david landis in fact was the person who grabbed me when i was 19 and said you have to read brenner um there was jeffrey williamson and claudia golden were absolutely wonderful there was peter temen over at mit um there was barry eichengreen um of course uh, who was still there on his way to berkeley there were a bunch of other people who were great hanging around you know there was cynthia taft morris coming in from smith there was naomi lamoureux coming up from brown um there was carol heim coming in from amherst um It was a very large and very nice community of people very interested in how the world, how the economic world had become what it was and what both economics and history could teach us about it. It also had a, um, I don't know what you want to call it, a classical Victorian bourgeois schedule then, right that the history... The core history um, time would start at noon or so with a lunch at the Harvard Faculty Club, followed by coffee, which would take us from noon to 2. And then the seminar would be from 2 to 4. And then there would be the sherry hour from 4 to 5. And often there would be a dinner afterwards. Um, So you could spend between noon and 7, essentially living the life of a Victorian gentleman or gentle lady. talking and thinking about economic history and, you know, drinking and eating. Um, it's true that the court was no longer what it had been in the days of, um, Alexander Gershonkron and of my great, great uncle, Abbott Payson Usher, who had preceded Gershonkron as the Ted of the economic history group. But it was still an impressive hangover remnant of a somewhat earlier age in some ways.
0: That sounds that sounds like a nice time. I have to say. Now, when when was it planted in you to uh, write a broad history? It was quite quite an ambition, which led to this book. And I understand it took almost a decade to write. Um,
1: well, I would say um, it's later than it should be because of the plague. Um, But kind of before the plague, I would say it took me maybe an average of an hour a day, five days a week um, for two and a half to three years, you know, to actually write the thing. Um, But I'd been accumulating teaching notes ever before a long time before then. And back in 1998, I thought somebody should write this book and it might be me. So let me write a chapter and you put it out there and also begin shopping around, talking to people about it, saying, I think this book should be written. Am I the person to write it? And then back before 1998, you know, I've been certain that someone should write this book since 1994 when Eric Hobsbawm published his Age of Extremes. And I read it and my reaction was, no, this is not the right book to write. Um, This is a book that... Eric Hobsbawm writes because of who he is, but it's not the big story. It's not the important story of 20th century economic history. Somebody should write the big book. Um,
0: So nobody
1: did. And so in the end, I decided that maybe it should be me. Um, Then Tim Sullivan from Basic Books came around and said, yo, um, let me put you under contract on this, and then I can call you up once a year and yell at you about how there isn't a manuscript yet in order to get you working on this. And I said yes, and now lo and behold, here I am.
0: So having mentioned Eric Hobsbawm, maybe you could use this opportunity to fit this book in the... In the broader range of books that cover the entire 20th century. Now there are there are some books like uh, Tony Jute's post-war that came out a decade ago right. that look at the, the full history. And then there are some books that look uh, just at the economic history. Um, David Landis has a couple that have that have looked at the at the long history and then closer to the yes. 20th century history. Yeah. Um, I guess you could say Hobsbawm's series of four books, Age of Revolution, Capital, Empire and Extremes, were right. covering similar from, territory. 17, 70, from
1: 1770 to 1989, yes.
0: And then um, Robert Gordon had Rise and Fall of American Growth. American which growth. which books do you see as the close relatives to your book? Um, well, there all
1: close relatives in some sense, you know. Um, On the other hand, I think my book is unique. Um, First, because it's explicitly a political economy book rather than an industrial organization or a technology and industry book, you know, that I would have love to have written the successor to David Landis' The Unbound Prometheus, but I found myself going in different directions. And I also think that my book is, in fact, the right book and the best books, because I think my book is the book that gets the grand narrative right. Um, That is, um, 1870 really is the hinge of history, right? That, um, before 1870, technological progress is still so slow and humanity is still so poor, and Malthusian forces are still so dominant that there is no way in hell that humanity is ever going to bake a sufficiently large economic pie for people to have enough. And so, before 1870, um, governance is overwhelmingly an elite. You know, a bunch of thugs with spears or rifles, plus their tame accountants, bureaucrats, and propagandists. You know, figuring out how to run a force and fraud game on the rest of humanity so they can grab enough you know, for themselves. And beat down the occasional peasant revolts and convince the peasants that they shouldn't revolt after all. After 1870, though, after 1870, the worldwide pace of technological progress more than quadruples. So that after 1870, humanity's technological competence doubles every single generation, which means that the idea that humanity will be able to bake a sufficiently large economic pie for everyone to have enough, That stops being an unrealizable utopian pipe dream and instead come becomes something that is barreling down the tracks of history toward us at a remarkably rapid rate. And so after 1870, history and governance and political economy are the fundamentally different thing of figuring out how are we going to manage this process by which humanity becomes incredibly rich relative to all previous generations in historically a blink of an eye and then what can we do to build systems that will allow us not only to bake a sufficiently large economic pie you know but also to slice it and taste it um to slice it to distribute it equitably and then to utilize it so that people live lives in which they feel safe and secure and are healthy and happy and the story of the long 20th century starts in 1870. It's the story of governance and politics and economics trying to deal with this situation that had suddenly been thrust on us. And it's the and it deals with the facts that we've been successful beyond previous centuries' wildest dreams in baking a sufficiently large economic pie, but that the problems of slicing and tasting it, the problems of distribution and utilization continue to more or less completely flummox us. Um, that's my story, and that's a very different story than Gordon or Hobsbawm or Landis. Um, and yet I think that's the important story.
0: Now, when you note this hinge point of 1870, when the rate of progress increases quite a bit, yeah. Could you could you note for a moment how you think about progress? Because most historians, they think in terms of GDP growth or maybe GDP growth per capita, but you like to sort of put a uh, economic growth theory bent on it and and specify the uh, Growth rate and technological change.
1: Yeah, well, you know, well GDP growth um, You know saying that progress is total GDP growth that really can't be right, because that implicitly assumes that, you know, people are not useful and productive, right? That if it's just technological progress and so forth that makes for higher GDP, you know, you're saying that it's as easy to produce a world with, you know, say... Um, A world of 1.6 billion people with an average income of fifty thousand dollars a year as a world of eight billion people with an average of ten thousand dollars per year in income and that can't be right because humans are very productive you know human eyes human hands human brains human mouths that loop is a very productive thing you know so gdp can't be the right measure when you're talking about progress and you know gdp per capita can't be the right measure either because that says it should be as easy to maintain a world with an average income of $10,000 per year if you have 1 billion people in the world, as if you have 8 billion. And we know that can't be right because resource scarcity is a thing. And the more abundant resources, the easier is the task. So what do you do between GDP on the one hand, which is average income per capita multiplied by population, and GDP per capita on the other, which is average income per capita multiplied by population raised to the zeroth power. Well, I split the difference and I say, let's raise population to the one half power. Let's do the square root of population and multiply that by average income per capita. Simply to split the difference. And if anyone has a strong feeling it should be that it should be more than a square root or less than a square root, um, let's bring the argument and I'll be happy to adopt it.
0: Now um and your argument is more consistent with modern modern growth theory and cer- certainly seems
1: yeah
0: uh convincing yeah. to mm-hmm. me. Now you note that your book is different in that it focuses on political economy. It's also an intellectual history. It's a history of ideas more than yeah, any yes. other books of economic history.
1: Yes. Yes. You know it it would have been nice to have had a bunch more about political parties and actually governance and administration, and it would have been nice to have had a bunch more about the actual nuts and bolts of technological front engineering progress and industrial development. Um, as it is, I only kept two of the industrial development sections, one on alternating current electricity and one on. Um, microprocessors um and you know i'm getting thwacked by that from both sides you know zach carter in descent was kind of bored and said it was easy to skim um over you know the um those two sections um adam twos is incredibly upset that there isn't a large equivalent section on oil um then i dare say i would have added if I had to do it over again, I would carve out some space and add something on mass production. Um, perhaps and materials science, the skies, material science, and skyscrapers, perhaps as well. But, you know, it is what it is. And it's 605 pages as it is. And that's already a very large and sprawling book. Um,
0: it no. would have
1: been nice to write a less political economy uh, or a book that did the political economy and also did other things. But, you know, as it is, the book is um a lift even for someone taking a transoceanic night flight. Um, the book is big enough.
0: Oh, I think it takes multiple transoceanic flights mm-hmm. to okay. to digest this book. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, we don't read as quickly as you. Uh, in the crimson article, it says you devour a book in twenty minutes and remember it all. So mm-hmm. maybe it's a quicker mm-hmm. read for for you. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> So take us through some of the uh, central characters of your intellectual history. You mentioned Hayek. Uh, Polyani is a relatively new character for many in intellectual yes. history, but he's central yeah. this narrative.
1: Well, you know, we are, we're narrative-loving animals, right? We like stories with beginnings, middles, and ends. In fact, we can barely think at all without them. So if you're going to write a book that is actually going to be a something more than a, you know, um, a piece to gain attention for an instant, you know, something that is actually going to be a treasure for a lengthy period of time. You know, it has to tell stories that have beginnings, middles and ends, and it has to have arresting protagonists, which are usually have to be people right? that Germany or the working class um, or the Enlightenment tend not to work nearly as much, you know, as people kind of do. Um, And so the way that the, or at least the underlying structure of the book is that after 1870, each generation, we have technology doubling in its competence and its ability to produce things. Um, And that's Schumpeterian creative destruction, as Joseph Schumpeter, the economist, would have said. It creates immense wealth it also destroys things it destroys entire sectors occupations livelihoods communities lifestyles and people get extremely angry and furthermore the fact that your forces of production now are profoundly different from what they were a generation ago um, that that hardware underlying society is different means that the software of sociology and networks and institutions of how people work and trade, that that has to be rewritten every generation as well to conform with the new and different forces of production hardware. And the question is, how are you going to rewrite it? And there are uh, two poles between which attempts to rewrite the sociological, economic, Cobbled together, running roughly, roughly running code of society. Um, and one of them is represented by Friedrich von Hayek, the idea that the market economy is tremendously effective as a mechanism for crowdsourcing solutions to problems that humanity sets itself and will do a wonderful job if you manage to get prices aligned with social values. And Friedrich von Hayek says, so the market will produce us enormous wealth. In the context of advancing science and engineering and von hayek says that's all we can get the market will produce enormous wealth it will not distribute it in any manner that anyone would say is fair but if we try to distribute it fairly if we ask for social justice we'll wind up breaking the market's ability to produce prosperity and we won't get anything that anyone regards as social justice in reply. We'll be on the road to serfdom. You know, we can see this by looking at what happened in 1990 when the Iron Curtain fell, and we saw that the countries on the other side of the Iron Curtain that had attempted to eliminate the market and distribute, distribute, run distribution on other principles and organize production on other principles that they were all only about a fifth as large or fifth as rich as the countries on the other side of the Iron Curtain that had remained, retained a dominant role for the market economy. And that 80% gap in prosperity, um, it's not cultural, it's not historical. It's simply determined by where Russia's, Stalin's Red Army stopped after World War II, you know, by and large. Um, so von Hayek says we have to trust the markets. And the only gospel we can afford to listen to is the market giveth, the market taketh away, blessed be the name of the market. On the other side, I picked Hungarian, Jewish, um, yeah, Hungarian, Jewish, American, Canadian sociologist, political economist, Karl Polanyi, a near contemporary of on Hayek, who said whether Hayek is right or not about the market, that is simply not the way people will behave. The market believes that the only rights that matter are property rights and people will demand that they have other rights and they will revolt if you try to tell them that the only rights that matter are the property property rights and the only people who have social power and voice are those currently rich. The reaction may be fascist, it may be reactionary, it may be socialist, it may be Stalinist, it might be social democratic. Um, It might be neo-feudal. It might be any of a whole bunch of other things. But, you know, say we have to trust the market, and you'll find society taking countersteps to attempt to greatly reduce the influence of the market, and the running code simply will not hold together. You'll get revolution um, and worse that what we must recognize, said Polanyi, is that the market was made for man, not man for the market and figure out how to cobble together a society that satisfies people's belief in social justice enough that society can hold together peacefully. And it's the oscillation back and forth between these two poles as each generation finds it has to rewrite its econo-sociological network political software in order to cope with the opportunities and also the costs and dangers of rapidly changing technology. That is the underlying set of forces and considerations within which the political economy history of the long 20th century takes place.
0: Now, in your framework where the politics is central and the politics in many cases dominates the economics, you, you point out that um, people of a neoclassical bent like to assume that if you just set up the structure and put the market algorithm to work, that everything will go well, but empirically, things usually don't go well. Could you explain that point of view?
1: Well, it'll be reduced an awful lot of wealth, but an awful lot of wealth for whom? Um, and it won't necessarily be at all stable again if i can quote from zach carter from his review in dissent that the key thing is that one has to take a system stability and system management perspective on the system in order for things to hold together at all and yet if you adopt a hardline von hayekian position which is the the market has knowledge and ways of acting that are beyond the ability of people to reason about you know, you will indeed wind up with Great Depressions um, and the same ilk. And that's without having the kind of political sociological blowback, you know, the socialist and the fascist movements to upset the market equilibrium in the interest of some particular group or other that thinks it's being, yeah, you know, that it's being ground under the wheels of the market at the same time.
0: You um the early 90s in Eastern Europe as an illustration that basically uh, capitalism had much outperformed socialism in terms of observed outcomes. That was Mm -hmm. also a time of uh, triumphalism. I think about books like Daniel Juergen's The Commanding Heights that came out in the late 90s when it seemed like the Washington Consensus was a powerful prescription. And then Maybe five years later, you could look at the Washington Consensus as having failed miserably in a lot of areas. Uh, what what was your view of uh, the of the policy climate in those years?
1: Well, you know, by by two thousand and ten, I think it was very clear that you know what I and what Gary Gersell like to call the neoliberal turn, the neoliberal order um that it had been a failure at anything except creating a very unequal society a much more unequal global north than in the first post-world war ii generation during the 30 glorious years of extremely rapid growth after world war ii you know that you know the neoliberal turn was supposed to debureaucratize society And it was also supposed to eliminate regulatory restrictions that hobbled entrepreneurship and enterprise. And so it was supposed to restore golden age growth rates, which had hit a rough patch in the late 1970s with the oil shocks, the inflation. It was supposed to restore golden age growth rates. It was to restore a sense of societal discipline. It was supposed to um, reward the job creators. And focus them on actually acts of entrepreneurial and industrial vision, rather than on figuring out how they could evade their taxes through clever legal things. It was supposed to reinstall a work ethic um, in a set of the poor who had, so the theory went, um, who had. ...gotten into the habit of taking too much advantage of social programs in order to avoid bearing their fair share of society's work. And in the global north, it wound up doing none of those things. So there was no moral center. There was no reduction in rent-seeking. There was very little attempt successful debureaucratization... All there was was significantly slower growth than in the Golden Age, except during the magic decade from 1975 to two, or 1995 to 2005, um, and extraordinary larger income inequality. Um, that neoliberalism, the Washington Consensus and the Global North, um, was a complete bust unless the only things you care about are the interests of the top one percent or maybe the top .1 percent. In the global South, things were different, right. In the global South, it may well be the case that a step away from central planning and bureaucracy toward market economy um you know had enormous benefits in China and huge benefits in India um, and Indonesia and elsewhere. Um, but you know, the idea that the global North had a set of Washington consensus policies that, countries should follow and grow rapidly well no right the countries that did best even in the neoliberal era were those that dissented from the washington consensus to the extent that they managed to run you know successful and relatively uncorrupt developmental states you know not those that let the market economy rip and got the government and kind of shrank the government to a size in which it could fit into a bathtub
0: now going back a bit in our story to the beginning your your history covers 1870 to 2010 because yeah. you think 2010 is a natural ending point to the story and 1870 is is when you mm-hmm. get this technological inflection where you have uh, yes. a huge increase in growth rates and in your story there are two times of truly exceptional growth one is 1870 to 1914 Another is... Economic
1: El Dorado, as Keynes called it. The other is the 30 glorious years.
0: Of 48 through roughly 73. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, you also had from 1982 onward some technological impetus that had... The stats not at the high three percent growth of forty eight through seventy three, but maybe a little better mm-hmm. than half that number. Um, and there seem to be some similarities between, say, eighteen seventy and to nineteen fourteen, and then maybe nineteen eighty two to um, mm-hmm. two thousand ten. Could you paint? Could you paint those similarities in? Because obviously. 1870 to 1914, the ec- the economics were very good, but then the politics broke down completely. What what were the core causes of that?
1: Yeah, well, they're both gilded ages, right? They're both ages of rapidly rising income and wealth inequality. Um, 1870 to 1914 is a you know um is a civilization that for the first time realizes just how fast technology is advancing and how the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie, you know, how it can be imagined that in a century or so that problem will be solved in a way that was unthinkable you know, back before 1870, all the way back to, I don't know what, the invention of beer, so forth. Um, and it's a fairly self-confident civilization thinking we know this, we know we are going to be able to manage this. And then, lo and behold, come 1914, it turns out they cannot manage it at all. And come 1919 and 1920, it turns out, no, we can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We can't just pretend that World War I was a bad dream and go on to progressive civilizational business as usual after World War I. I'm... Um. You could have said the same thing if you were a great optimist from about the neoliberal era from 1982 up to 2005 or so. You know, you could say that, well, you know, debureaucratization has not happened, but it's going to happen. You could say you could point to the high tech revolution and say that technological progress is not all the way back to where we'd like it to be, but it's somewhat. You could say that the rise in income inequality was an unfortunate piece of the puzzle, but it was necessary in order to get incentives properly aligned again, in order to get rid of, you know, rent seeking by groups that had managed to capture economic positions that were unproductive, in order to get rid of the enormous tax shelter and tax evasion industry, in order to realign the incentive to produce with the rewards that people got in society and that things would get significantly better real soon now, um, and, you know, I was kind of in that line come 1999 and 2000, when I looked at the federal budget and surplus, when I looked at how the U.S. government was once again starting to be a source of funds for investing in America and technological progress, rather than the drag it had been in the Reagan years, um, you know, looking forward to say in two thousand to the President of Al Gore and to a continuation of the rapid economic growth of the Clinton Gore years, you could be quite optimistic. you know, but two thousand and one arrives. Um, and all of a sudden we recognize that forms of religious war and terrorism that we thought people had outgrown centuries before, you know are back and are very real. Um two thousand and three arrives um. And we recognize that the United States is no longer willing to undertake the role of benevolent hegemon, um, conducting the world toward a future of peace and greater prosperity, but instead that the United States government regards its military as a tool it can use to throw any particular country it decides it doesn't like against the wall. um, And takes the foot off the gas with respect to continuing the integration um, of the world into a peaceful and prosperous economy. After 2005, the rate of technological progress drops, perhaps in large part because the neoliberal turn had focused too much corporate attention on short-term profits. And so the great industrial research labs of the post-war and the the pre-World War II period were dismantled, plus the U.S. government kind of got out of the investment and research and development business to a substantial degree. 2008 showed that all the lessons about how you properly need to regulate financial organizations in order to avoid financial crises had been lost um, under pressure of neoliberal ideologies saying that overregulation of finance was a huge problem. 2010 demonstrated that you know, Governments no longer took seriously what I thought had been established in the 1930s by John Maynard Keynes and company, that it was the business of governments to maintain full employment and get back there as fast as possible. You know, 2013 saw the start of what I think of as the rise of neo-fascism around the world. 2016 saw the election of, you know, that chaos monkey Donald Trump and 2022 has seen the return of major power war you know that all of the things that were many of the things that held the 20th century together and made it a time when we could say yes we're getting richer very fast and we're almost on the brink of solving the problems of slicing and tasting of distribution and utilization all of that kind of fell away plus we now have um three big problems we did not have for most of the long, for much of the long 20th century, you know? We have the problem of global warming. We have the problem of nuclear proliferation, reaching critical mass, and a problem that we thought we had solved in 1945, the problem of fascism, um, is back, and is back in perhaps a bigger menace than ever. So after 2010, we clearly have another story than one that that Utopia will be within our grasp because we'll have the material preconditions of it soon and all we need to do is a small matter of socioeconomic programming to build a good society on top of that. All of a sudden, history has a very different tinge. And so I thought I should bring the story to the close in 2010. Um, Plus, a story has to have an end. You know, you really can't sell a book that ends with the cliffhanger, saying the story continues unless you're promising to have a sequel out real soon now. And that I could not promise.
0: So I wanted to venture quickly into the topic of inflation, because this is a central topic of the book. Uh, you think that it drove politics in the mm. interwar period. Um, also you note that it was a very important political factor in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. uh, currently it's, it's topic du jour. And it, maybe uh, <laughs> it's worth mentioning that, that your uh, co-author, Larry Summers, has recently written a paper which shows that if you apply a consistent methodology to the inflation calculation, the inflation prints that we had earlier this year were as high As the highest prints that we had in the early '80s, Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, perhaps you could talk a bit about the inflation and the parallels to today.
1: Well, you know that is that you know people don't just want property rights to be respected; they want their Polanyian rights to be respected. You know, they want to have a community that is comfortable and that fits them. You know, they want to have stability of occupation, at least, if not stability of job. They want to have the income that they deserve and the ability to buy the things that they want to buy at the prices they expect. And any time a government conducts an economy that doesn't do all of those three things, it's likely to be in big trouble and perhaps in bigger trouble in times of inflation than in times of depression. You know, that is a depression is absolutely horrible for the perhaps one in 20 extra people who's unemployed as a result um, and completely devastating for the one in 40 people who's long term unemployed um, uh, during a depression. But during an inflation, um, well, everyone feels as though society, the government has broken its contract with them because they have their incomes. They've gotten their incomes by the sweat of their brow and their industry. And they then expect to be able to turn around and use those incomes to buy the things they want and need at the prices they expect. And it's not so. They can't. You know, prices are above what they expected and seem to be climbing out of reach. You know, um, it costs $85 to fill up the car, um, was my most recent um, experience. Mm. You know, and that's kind of a shock um, to have that happen. So that any time that there is an inflation, it's going to greatly erode people's confidence that the system, whatever the current system is, has it right, and is going to make people much more eager to vote for people who have other ideas about how things could be done differently. And maybe those other people will be sensible technocrats who understand the situation. Um, Maybe they will be rabble-rousers who simply want to figure out how what the people want to hear so they can get in front of the crowd. You know, the, um, the famous, you know, perhaps apocryphal line is from the French politician, you know, um, Andre Ledru Roland, who's supposed to have looked out a window at a party and said, there go my people and I must follow them for I am their leader. Um, watching a mob storm down the streets of Paris. Um, they can simply be, um, simply be kleptocrats out for a grift and have started the thing as a way to get media attention, wound up as chief executive, and have no idea what the hell to do, um, other than try to squirrel away documents they are not entitled to because they might be of some use to them someday. Um, That times of inflation are times of extreme danger in terms of opening up the fission between von Hayek and Polanyi sides, you know, that trust that it makes trust in the market and the market economy fall immediately to a very, very low ebb. Um, on the other hand, yeah, um, Friedrich von Hayek would be the first to say that the inflation we've had in the past year and a half, you know, is the market logic working its way out in a largely benevolent way? That is, we are trying to reopen the economy after the plague, and we're trying to reopen it into a new configuration in which we have more deliverators and programmers and more goods producers in the factories, and we have fewer in-person sales clerks and fewer waiters and so forth. And if you're going to move a large chunk of the labor force around into new sectors and new industries, I'm... Well, you really can't expect to cut anyone's wages and have them still show up and work hard. It's a major diss to cut your wages. So that means that if we're going to provide market incentives to pull people into occupations where we need them, you know, wages in expanding industries will have to go up somewhat. You know, and then bingo, that's inflation. Also, when we reopen, and when, especially when we reopen in a new configuration, there are an awful lot of bottlenecks. At any time a good is bottlenecked, Hayek would be the first to say, well, we want its price to go up, because having its price go up will crowdsource the solution to the problem of the bottleneck. Everyone thinking of buying it will say, hmm, is there a substitute that I can use in order to not use up this supply of this thing that is scarce? Everyone who might produce it will be saying, hmm, is there some way I can take advantage of this and produce some of this to make money? So you don't have that inflation when you come out of this kind of something like this plague. You're not going to get the economy into a highly productive configuration quickly at all. We saw this in 1947 um, when we were demobilizing after World War II and moving the economy into a civilian configuration. And we had a one and a half year burst of inflation, which then went away. Uh, We saw this in 1951, when we largely undid 1947, when after Stalin's puppet, Kim Il-sung, attacked South Korea, we decided we were going to mobilize permanently to fight the Cold War. And so we once again had to wheel the economy into a different configuration, and we had a year and a half of inflation, um, which then went away. Um,
0: So problem...
1: Yeah. I mean, the problems, as I say, is that A, inflation is a dangerous destroyer of confidence. Um, B, there is the danger that if people lose lose belief that the Federal Reserve has it in the long run, um, and that inflation will get back to normal quickly. Um, and if there are big supply shocks, you know, bad things happening in particular strategic markets that cause enormous swings. In important resource prices, you may well wind up in a situation like the nineteen seventies of stagflation, which is then very, very painful to cure. You know, um, and I would have said that you know we were on the appropriate path, given the risks on both sides up until the end of January this year. But then in February, Vladimir Putin attacks Ukraine. Um, energy and grain markets go absolutely bonkers. And right now, this morning, OPEC has decided it's going to grab for all it can by cutting back on its its production, too, so that we no longer have a reopening shock, just we no longer have a reopening and a reallocation shock. We also have this supply shock and the dangers that it's going to become stagflation have just gone significantly up. Um, So now... We really need to worry, and we really need to hope that the Federal Reserve does indeed, has indeed got this.
0: So in your mind, it it was looking like a closely run thing, uh, whether this inflation looked similar to the, yeah. the late 40s demobilization versus right. the 1970s inflation expectation infringement, and now you would say the odds are sort of tilted towards it looking more like the 70s? And, you
1: know, I was actually talking to Larry about this, and I was still saying at the start of September, and I was still saying it was, I thought it was 40%, we should be worried more about our stagflation problem that might happen, 60%, we should be worried more about making sure the reopening happens, and we don't get back to a secular stagnation economy. After the past month, after this morning, I got to say that it's 60 percent we should be worrying about stagflation and 40 percent we should be worrying about you know the reopening and avoiding a return to secular stagnation and the zero lower bound.
0: And there in terms of worries about stagflation, it's a lot about what Larry Summers has been chatting about in terms of not letting inflation expectations get entrenched in the way they were in the 70s. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Uh, the problem is that the thing that entrenches inflation expectations more than anything else is what the price is at the gas pump, right? And it looks like prices at the gas pump are about to go up again. And so...
0: I've never heard that before. Is that that Mm -hmm. well accepted, the idea that that's... uh in terms of psychology, consumer psychology, super important?
1: I would, well, I would, it's definitely something that Barsky and Killian have been pushing in a bunch of papers that they wrote, and they're very smart, and I think they're right. Um, I wouldn't say it's dominant, but it's certainly a view, and I think it's the correct view.
0: One thing that was a bit new to me in your book is that you point out that the Volcker era at the Fed was a bit of a historical accident and uh, not that likely to have happened. Could you revisit that moment?
1: I would say it was weird. It was really weird, right? That that, Jimmy Carter and his people really, really, really disliked the then current Fed chair, Arthur Burns. Um, First, because they thought he had played um, footsie with Richard Nixon too much in the run up to the nineteen seventy two election. You know, doing things that were bad monetary policy in order to generate good headlines before the re- for the re-election campaign of his friend and longtime kind of patron um Richard Nixon. And plus, he was an arrogant and annoying guy. Um, so they went around and they decided who should we get, And they got a very good manager named G. William Miller who was very much a fish out of water, who did not really understand what the issues were, right? Who was a good manager, a good executive, but not someone who you would think of has, should be in this job, and they put him in the job. And he found himself somewhat over his head, you know, trying to figure out how should I balance my desire to avoid recession with my desire to reduce inflation. But then at one point, um, you know... Carter gets mad at his Treasury secretary, Blumenthal and fires his treasury secretary um, and you know he fired his Treasury secretary and he said, "I'm firing my Treasury secretary now, and his staff says, "Well, you can't fire your Treasury secretary without having a replacement and saying, "I'm naming nominee so and so as the replacement. If you just fire the Treasury secretary without having a replacement, you convey the impression that you're an undisciplined president heading an administration in somewhat of a degree of chaos um and you know he was a somewhat undisciplined president heading an administration in a degree of chaos and you know you might say well maybe you should own it rather than try to cover it up if you really can't resist your desires to fire to fly off the handle and fire your treasury secretary who do we know? Who do we know who'd make a good treasury secretary and who had an easy time getting it firm? They say, I know we can pull G. William Miller in from the Federal Reserve. And so it set that they're going to announce that um, they're going to fire Mark um, Blumenthal and they're going to replace him with G. William Miller. But then you have the same problem. You can't just move G. William Miller out of his job as president or as chairman of the Federal Reserve without having a replacement in mind, because that, conveys the idea that you're an undisciplined administration that does not really know what it is doing. Um, So the question is, who is next in line? Who is next in line? Well, the vice chair of the Fed was Henry Wallach, um, a Republican. Um, So no, 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 can't do that. Um, Who's next in line? Well, Paul Volcker was president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. And was a longtime bipartisan, former Treasury Secretary, longtime Treasury and Federal Reserve staffer. I know we will we'll, we'll just take Paul Volcker and we'll nominate him. Brookings economist and then chair of the CEA, Charlie Schultz, told me that he had an, an interesting conversation with um Jimmy Carter's chief domestic policy advisor, Stu Eisenstadt as this was going down saying has anyone researched or talked to Paul Volcker about what his ideas are about fighting inflation and whether they are in fact consistent with administration policy, Um, and was effectively ignored because the bureaucratic imperatives were have a name for the nominee, have a name to put before the press this evening, because it's very important not to appear to be an undisciplined administration which is disorganized and which does not have a plan to make good decisions you know and so Paul Volcker who turned out to be um far hawkish than either Jimmy Coninflation than either Jimmy Carter's White House or Ronald Reagan's White House wanted or imagined wound up in charge of the Federal Reserve And able to bring the Federal Open Market Committee along with him to his belief that we have to make the elimination of stagflation job one, and it's going to take a nasty recession in order to do it. But we have to do it. We have to make businessmen really scared that if they raise prices, they'll lose their markets, and workers really scared that if they demand higher wage increases, they may well be the first fired that that's the only way to break inflationary psychology. You know, and Volcker did it.
0: Um, Well, to put it in a a current perspective, um, it seems like things look much more like the 1970s experience, which you point out, lasted quite a a long time, in that there were multiple stops and starts yeah. multiple
1: stops and starts and you know the underlying rate of core inflation was around eight percent when paul volcker took office in late 1979 and there was the shock of the iranian revolution and its additional disruption of the oil market working through the system right then as well um, we're not there now right that is the the underlying rate of inflation that the Federal Reserve watches, the PCE deflator, uh, chain deflator, has been hanging around at 5% per year for a year and a half as the economy reopens, you know, which is only halfway from its target of 2 up to the 8% it was when Volcker came in. It. So it's not nearly as big a problem. Um, as to whether there is another supply shock coming down the pipe, Um, it now looks like there is. So that's yesterday. I would have said that the situations still are very substantially dissimilar because I would have said that the Putin shock to supply shock has passed. And you know, there are enough signs of economic weakening that we can be confident that the PCE inflation rate, core PCE inflation rate is 5% this year and is likely to be 4% next year and 3% the year after, and that we're on the right track. Even without major additional interest rate rises, um, today, things are up for grabs again. It really depends on what happens at the pump, gas pump, and at what the how people's expectations change in reaction to that.
0: I wanted to ask you for one moment about uh, deficits because mm-hmm. you you believe firmly in the role of the federal government for demand management, but by the same token, you talk favorably about the late Clinton years, 1999, when the federal government Uh, is in surplus. And in the book, you note that uh, Reagan does not bear enough blame for sort of exploding deficits and the persistent deficits there. And sort of reading between the lines, you think that there's... There hasn't been enough of the mm-hmm. government spending that has been paid for through taxation. It's a little bit uh, too... I would definite. say
1: that we've, had, we've gone through two different economies, right? That there was the economy as it stood up until maybe 2001, which is an economy of relatively high interest rates, which is capital scarce. Um, in which case, if the federal government is running a large deficit... Um, what that means is that that's going to soak capital that would otherwise finance investment away from someplace else. It can come from any of a very large number of things. And by soaking that capital away, it's discouraging our actual ability to build stuff, put it into place, start it working, you know, and grow. So that the benefits to having a fiscal surplus in a time of high interest rates, you know, um are extremely large and that the reagan policies of fiscal largesse and large deficits in the 1980s were exactly the opposite of what we needed while the clinton austerity you know we need to raise taxes and we need to put a lid on federal spending programs is actually a very good thing it rechanneled 200 billion dollars a year which was a lot of money back then um but you know since 2001 do Things have been kind of very different, right? That interest rates have been so low that if you have the risk-bearing capacity and the idea to try to do something, you can get money for any to finance pretty much any scheme, anything you want to build or invest in that isn't harebrained, and even some things you want to invest in that are completely harebrained. Right? I mean, the crypto bubble of the past three years has been absolutely astonishing in terms of the harebrainedness of the underlying business models. You know, that yes, I can agree that there are probably likely future uses to blockchain that will be interesting. But why owning why owning Bitcoin or Ethereum as they are today is going to give you any property rights to or control? over anything that will actually make money by being a useful crypto mm-hmm. blockchain asset in the future is a question that escapes me and that investors in Ethereum and in holding Ethereum and in Bitcoin have no answer to um, at all. That programming things in Ethereum, yes, that teaches you skills that might be useful in the future, but holding it as an asset you know. Whoever actually figures out what the use cases are is not going to want to give away two-thirds of their potential wealth to latecomer, to to people who just happened to buy the thing called Ethereum before. They'll fork it um, and establish their own. Um, And yet, and yet, and in a world in which, um, the world that is absolutely awash in capital, um, all of a sudden the... Political economy and the economics of government spending is very, very different. Um, instead, it becomes as long as it's good for society. You know, since you can borrow at for essentially free, you know, why not borrow and do something that's good for society? After all, in real terms, it isn't costing you anything in terms of in, in terms of interest you must pay to do that. And so, the difference between right now when The 10-year real treasury rate is, I think, still only hanging out at 1% per year in real terms. And the world of the early 1980s, when it was up at 6% in real terms. um, Those are two very different economic environments. And what the right fiscal policy is, you know, um, is very different then as well. In short, our MMT friends are right today. For the moment, but they were definitely not right in the 1990s, and there probably will come a day in the future when they are not right again.
0: And empirically, um, there's a relationship between the percentage of the federal budget that is funded by taxation and the inflation rate. Uh, At one point, you... um, You note that there is uh, a way empirically to, or a way to estimate the change in the price level that will come from a a large increase in federal debt. I've never actually seen that equation before. Where where does where where does that come from? It was quite an interesting section. It's
1: the fiscal theory. It's the fiscal theory of the price level, and it really depends on who is going to ultimately knuckle under. Right. That is. Is the government going to continue to run deficits until the central bank gives up and prints money in order to finance it when the people who own the government bonds decide they want to sell them? Um, Will the central bank say, oh, great, we have to support the price of the bonds by printing money, Um, in which case you get the fiscal theory of the price level, which is what you had in the 1920s? or will the central bank hold tough to its idea of what good monetary policy is? And when there comes to be some kind of disturbance in the credit markets, you know, will the government knuckle under and say, all right, we have to raise taxes, and cut spending to get the budget back into balance. In the first case, you do indeed have the fiscal theory of the price level, um, and you know, a government deficit is going to produce inflation. In the second case, you know, it won't. And indeed, we got to see this over the past two weeks. In fact, we got to see it switch, right? That Liz Truss and and Kwasi Kwarteng take office as the Britain, um, replacing Boris Johnson, and promptly proceed to introduce yet another act in the post-Brexit British government clown show by promising that they were going to provide huge subsidies to people in Britain so that they can afford to buy natural gas this winter, plus cut taxes for the rich an enormous amount. Yeah. And they thought we're simply repeating the Reagan-Thatcher playbook. It's going to be very popular. Um, instead, the everyone in the financial community worldwide took a look at this and said not only have they made these plans but they've also prohibited the office of budgetary responsibility from actually providing estimates of what it will do and they have been moving to curtail the independence of the bank of england as well Um, they're going to stick to their guns and when the crisis comes they are going to demand that the bank of england support the value of british bonds by printing money and buying it up The fiscal theory of the price level is here. Britain is now headed toward an emerging market inflationary debt crisis. We better dump the pound now. Um, And it was quite an exciting week. Um, These new instruments called LDIs blew up. The Bank of England had to provide orderly markets. And then at the end of it, at the end of it, um, Quarteng and trust said, uncle, uncle. They said, we are pulling back our plans completely. He said, admonishments by the Bank of England and by the markets have been so complete that we're abandoning our plans for the high income tax cuts and we'll come back later on. So we got to see a situation in which people expected, you know, the monetary authority to do what the rest of the government wanted and for a deficit to produce inflation. We got to see the market reaction to that. We then got to see an unexpected change of plan by Truss and Quarteng, um, in which they responded by saying, all right, the central bank has made it clear that it's not going to monetize our deficits. We had better get our fiscal house in order. You know, it's going to be wonderful to teach over the next two years uh, for this, both over the circumstances as to when big government deficits or even the belief there'll be big government deficits in the future when that produces expectations of inflation and inflation itself, you know, and when it doesn't. And it's all in this little news box in the pages of the Financial Times over a two-week period.
0: What is the, what is the history of the, the concept of the fiscal theory of the price level? I had not encountered it before. Hmm. Where did I learn it? Um, it's
1: Tom Sargent taught it to me when he came visiting Harvard and taught an evening macro class. And I think 1980, 1981, Um, it was well-developed kind of then, Um, but, you know, the form, I think, his lectures are the first place I've actually seen it in a proper rational expectations forward-looking um, kind of frame. The earlier parts of it, what I've seen, things like, you know, Kagan's studies of the German hyperinflation Um in the Milton Friedman edited nineteen fifties monetary policy volume, those are all have backward looking rule of thumb kind of agents who simply spend the cash they have on hand. Um, you know, it probably wasn't Tom Sargent who first wrote it down, but I've never had occasion to go back and look for someone anyone earlier. But I'll do that.
0: Yeah, I, I was I was fascinated by by those pages. Mm-hmm. Um, I. You mentioned that sort of three intellectual drivers of the 20th century were fascism, socialism, and neoliberalism. And you say that basically these are ideas that uh, people came back to again and again, even when they didn't work. Um, They
1: they cannot fail, they can only be failed, yes
0: is the, and and you expect that pattern to uh repeat itself um i don't know right that but... i would say that we're not doing
1: we haven't been doing too well at inventing new ways of organizing our public sphere, our politics, and our political economy yeah, since 1870. That each generation, there's been a need for a different configuration, and yet each generation, we seem to be trying to repurpose old modules, or old software modules to run society and without building new ones that are sufficiently innovative Mm -hmm. and that people will always or people always think they can cast back to some previous generation in which things were working well the problem is that the underlying technological organization of society is so different now than it was a generation ago let alone two or three or four generations ago that to say if only we could get back to the time of Teddy Roosevelt and the institutions of Teddy Roosevelt, all would be fine. You know, that's got to simply be wrong. Um, so I would say, yes, that ideas are very powerful and remarkably long lived um, and that what we really should recognize and what really need to recognize is that. You know, that technological change has its own powerful logic, and the society you build on top of it has to conform right to it that you know, to put it very crudely you could have a society of you know lords knights peasants and wandering merchants under the feudal and with under the feudal system and the feudal system back when everyone was kind of a peasant farmer but when you got modern commerce and urbanization you know, all of a sudden it made absolutely no sense to have, you know, knights and nobles commanding them. Instead, you get the kind of gunpowder empire social structure in which you still have princes and dukes and earls, but these are now honorific titles. And, you know, it's a bureaucracy and it's a set of accountants and it's a kind of, and the chancellor of the exchequer is now the most important person in government because it's the money flow that's the case. Yeah, you know, but the British government of 1600 could not deal in any way with the economy of the steam power era of 1970 and attempts to reproduce politics of Henry VIII or even Elizabeth I simply would not have worked back then. But since 1870, things, you know, we went from feudalism to gunpowder empires to steam power between 1000 and 1870. And since 1870, we've had a lot of leaps of equivalent size, you know, from steam power to the second industrial revolution of organic chemicals and electricity, you know, to mass production, to mass consumption, to the global value chain economy. And now we seem to be headed for the infobiotech economy. Each of these leaps is plausibly as big as the leap from feudalism to the gunpowder empires or from the gunpowder empires to steam power. And each of these requires as big changes in the economy and in how we organize our politics and our debates about politics um, as those did. And we're having a very hard time keeping up.
0: How do you think about violence in economic history? Because I guess one big difference in a focus on political economy is that Violence is actually a very important part of your story. It happens uh, pretty often. And as you point out, it's something that occurs sometimes almost by chance. It's it's as if there are conditions that increase the probability, but then when the probability gets high enough, it can be set off by some random things. So how how do you fit uh, violence in in your story, and what increases the probability of violence?
1: Well, you know, before 1870... It's pretty much mostly violence all the way down, you know. I mean, win-win exchange and production and expanded division of labor, you know, simply doesn't get you very far because everyone is quite poor. And that even if you are on an expedition to engage in world trade, you need to have your cannon to deal with pirates and others. And only after you've won the military victory can you then even talk about establishing your property rights um, and enforcing your property rights um, over any substantial geographical area and we haven't even gotten to slavery plantations exploitation land theft and so on and so forth um you know since 1870 right it's it's almost always been the case that it would be cheaper to produce and trade than to use violence to you know, exploit and oppress. Um, and yet there's an awful lot of violence, exploitation and oppression going mm-hmm. on, even so that and I think this is part of our failure to utilize, you know, um, Starting with it was obvious that World War One was a horrible botch, but even before then, you know, they say the Britain's engagement in the Boer War, you know, was a horrible botch. It would have been one tenth as expensive at fighting the Boer War to simply bribe everyone in the Transvaal and Orange Free State to acknowledge Victoria as their queen, um, and with actually no difference as of how things would have been in 1910 because in 1910, South Africa was a self-governing dominion and the Boer politicians who would have been ruling it had there been no Boer war were back in place um, in charge of the country with no difference, except for an awful lot of dead people, including an awful lot of dead women and children in concentration camps, Um, dead Zulu and Zosa and other African tribes, other African, indigenous African tribes, dead in numbers that weren't counted. Um, and a general attitude among the Boer-speaking population, among the Afrikaans-speaking white population in South Africa toward Britain that made the attitude of Catholic Irish toward Britain seem like, you know, we're all peaceful unicorn lovers here. Um, And, you know, right now we have killer robots um, stalking the skies above Syria and Ukraine right now. And for what purpose? Um, Right, because some people like the Assad family's ability to continue to plunder Syria on the one hand, and because Vladimir Putin thinks that this is the way to convince Ukrainians that they were brainwashed by their teachers and they actually aren't Ukrainians at all, but instead great Russians. And I must say, if you want to convince Ukrainians that they are not a separate nationality, but have only been misled by self-interested woke politicians and educators into thinking they are, He's going about it the wrong way, right? This is not a convincing argument, and yet you know, here we
0: have it. Um... and the the probability of of violence, it's going up in inflationary times quite a bit. It's going up in depressionary times. It's going up in uh, times of high inequality are those are fair generalizations. Yeah.
1: Going up in times of spreading nuclear weapons, um, you know, that George W. Bush's attack on Iraq. um, Well, everyone took note of the fact that, you know, Iran had a credible nuclear weapons program and North Korea had a credible nuclear weapons program. And somehow um, the only member of the axis of evil that the United States attacked was the one that did not have a nuclear weapons program at all. Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons program in 2004 um, because Colin Powell and company convinced them that nuclear proliferation was the issue of the century and that they should take a step forward. And what did they have to worry about? They had security guarantees from both Russia and the United States who would mess with us. And I must say, right now, everyone is thinking that was an unwise decision by Vladimir Zelensky's predecessors, wasn't it? So, you know, we can look forward to a world with a lot more nuclear weapons, in which case every country is hostage to its own god-maddened colonels who may decide to launch thinking that the storm god of the Semites will hold his protective hand over them to keep them from retaliation. Um, or even worse, hostage to majors in another country who may think that you are about to launch. Mm-hmm.
0: Back to Thomas Shell uh, world. Yeah, yeah. Well, I th- I thank you so much for this time. I want to end by uh, talking about your blog at Substack Grasping yes. Reality. You've been yes. you've been blogging for over over a decade. Could you take us take us through that journey? And readers or listeners should obviously be buying the book, slouching towards Utopia, and following you, know, you at, at DeLong, but it also... Really uh, started to...
1: around 2000, you know, that I'd had a graduate school roommate, Paul Mendy, um, who had gone into physics, and had, when I got out of the treasury in 1995, Paul said, physics has all moved over to the internet at, you know, um, at archive.org for all our papers, Economics will do it too. You need to learn how to program in HTML and put all your papers up on the web. And so I started doing so. And around 2000, there was some evening when I opened my print copy of the journal Foreign Affairs, and I found myself cited twice: once by Columbia's Jagdish Bhagwati, and once by um Prince. No, he wasn't then Prince, Princeton, was he then? Once at and by MIT then. MIT's then Paul Krugman, um. And the interesting thing was that the quotes were not quotes from the published versions. They were all quotes from the working papers that it uploaded to my website. And so I flashed to Jagdish and Paul, right, under some deadline pressure from the foreign affairs editors, you know, frantically, they weren't Googling. There was no Google then. they were probably Alta Vista Ing, an earlier search engine established as a technology demonstration by Digital Equipment Corporation, Alta Vista Ing around, looking for something they could drop in. Paul Krugman to praise and Jagdish Bhagwati to take it as a straw man to thwack. Uh, but you know, hey, all publicity is good publicity. And they'd run across me on the internet, and I did that, and I said, hmm, um. I don't get the attention of Jagdish Bhagwati or Paul Krugman when I publish articles in economics journals. In fact, I don't know how few people read them, but it's not very many. And here I have their attention from my website. I should double down on this. You know, and I have. Um, I must say I had hopes in the distant past that the Internet would self-organize it for me and I'd be able to find find interesting thoughts that I just wrote down that otherwise have passed out of mind by simply searching Googling for myself on the Internet, I must say that it hasn't happened. You know, um, Google has been much too interested in figuring out how to sell ads than in how to provide breadcrumb breadcrumb trails to produce good search results um,
0: for queries. Mm -hmm well maybe, maybe but there's some development now, there's a lot of
1: stuff up there. Yes,
0: mm-hmm. with uh, machine language processing, maybe there's maybe there's some great we can hope.
1: We can hope. we can hope. Um, alternatively, well, we could simply train a gpt four or gpt five on the text of all the writings on my weblogs, and we can see how smart it is.
0: Um, I, I think could that then is in context.
1: I could then run contests, the writing op-eds, bought or not. Um,
0: that sounds like a likely future to me. Yes.
1: All right. Okay.
0: Well, thank you so much for this time. I'm deeply appreciative.
1: Yes. You're very welcome. Thank you for thinking of me. Um, I love it, especially because I'm trying to sell books now, and having the opportunity to talk to you and your audience is an absolutely wonderful thing for me, for which I'm extremely grateful.
0: Football fans, join the next generation of fantasy football with Rainmakers Football, the first ever NFT fantasy game from DraftKings. It's the only NFT fantasy game licensed by the NFL Players Association. You can play all season for millions in prizes by building the ultimate NFT franchise. Playing Rainmakers is simple. Buy, sell, bid, and win player card NFTs of the biggest names in the game through regular drops and auctions on DraftKings Marketplace. Build your NFT franchise and enter free Rainmakers football contests all season long. You'll be competing for almost 30 million in prizes. Download the DraftKings Fantasy app and sign up with the promo code ADAMS. Click the Rainmakers tile and opt in to get your first card free. You will then be playing for millions in prizes all football season while building the ultimate NFT franchise. That's promo code ADAMS. Build, play, and win only at DraftKings.